LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Group Answers Podcast, a weekly show designed to resource, train, and encourage small group leaders. Each episode considers current trends and resources, as well as timeless truths and methods of discipleship. It's hosted by Brian Daniel and Chris Surratt. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Group Answers Podcast. I am Brian Daniel, and as always, here with Chris Surratt. Chris, that is a killer T-shirt there. What does that mean? Turn me right side up? Uh, no, this is actually this is a, a baseball T-shirt. You can only see the top of it, but the uh, it's three up and three down. So it has an, three is the main picture, and then it has an arrow up and an arrow down. I love it because only baseball lovers get it. So I'm, for instance, I've had this t-shirt for a while, but I'm walking in Vegas a few years ago and I'm wearing it with my wife and somebody yells from across the street, literally just three up, three down. And I'm like, yes, you get it. You're a baseball person. So that's why I love this t-shirt. How many years ago was that? It was probably three, four years ago. And is that the only time that's happened? With this shirt? No, I've actually had it a, yeah. had it a few times. That was the most random, just somebody across the boulevard okay. in Vegas. But Well, yeah. I mean, our listeners aren't interested in this, and plus with the no visuals, this is probably really bad radio, but I don't know that I would have gotten it. I And I am a baseball really? person. I was just curious. Yeah, maybe my – well, I think we know where I stand IQ and observation-wise maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> is there anything on the back? Is no. there another? Is there any no. more cues or clues? No, l- on let me give a shout out and see if I can get a sponsorship. Um, it's a store called Baseball <laughs> Baseballism. Um, I don't think they have one in Nashville, but they have one in uh, Orange County out there uh, in a couple places. And then I actually bought this one when I was in Phoenix for the SBC. That's when I bought it. I was in Phoenix for the SBC. Man, and, uh, there's a store there. So if anybody with Baseballism is listening, reach out. So okay, I want to respond to that. There are two stores you said in Orange County. I was flying back from somewhere recently and it was a west to east. It was a, I think it was a California Nashville trip. And I was sitting next to, I don't know about you. And it's a, probably another whole conversation, but I'm not one of those that, um, begins flight engagement because yeah. once you do, you're there. You can't yep. move. You're, I mean, you're kind of there. So I'm. But anyway, somehow I got in a conversation with someone and she was considering moving to Nashville until she realized we didn't have baseball. California is a is such a cool baseball state. I mean, it is a super cool. I don't think California is a great sports state. Um, someone may take issue with that. I don't know. I, I don't see California as a great sports state, but it is a great, great baseball state. Really. Well, neat. I think. Yeah, when I think I think Southern California mostly, and so you got the Angels, you got the Dodgers, you got the Padres, and I mean all awesome historic teams with great. I've been to two of those. I haven't been to the Dodger Stadium. I've been to the Padres, current Padres, and the Angel Stadium. Just amazing stadiums. But the thing about California, 
is the weather so nice? There are yeah. lots of other things to do. You know, yeah. go to the beach, go to the mountains. There's just so many distractions. So that, that's why I think it's not a great sports, at least southern state. I don't really know anything about the north side. I've spent very little time up there. But southern, it's just too nice. Well, the Giants, Giants, Giants as well. Giants have a huge following up in San yeah. Francisco and in that part of the state. Yeah, All right, so uh, here we are. We are yep. one episode in to uh, you know our post sabbatical, which we talked about in uh, last week's show. You know, we took some time off on recording. We are, I don't know, as the time of this recording, it looks like the media is trying to bring COVID back. <laughs> but I would say that we are we are post pandemic. Chris, I just think that's what we're going to be dealing with. Not only will coronavirus, COVID always be around, but the media, it seems like, desperately wants us to be scared again. So that's not a political statement. That would seem to be just true. (laughs) Yeah. Now, on the other side of it, I do know a lot of people. My my father has COVID right now. He's 88. Um, But it's also not killing him. I mean, he's doing fine. So people are getting COVID, but it seems like it's not as scary as it was. So, yeah, but I get yeah, it. Yeah, and I shouldn't, and I apologize if it came off if I was making light of that no, because no, that, no, that, would, no. that would be wrong. But I go the point both I was, the, Yeah, the point I was getting to is that um, we are still looking at a, a slow return of, uh, to church from what was once a – um, a regular church attender. In fact, there's some research out there that says, I've got it written right here, uh, as many, 30 to 50% have not returned. I guess that depends on your context and lots of things. But those numbers, 50%, Chris, is a huge number. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not churches that are growing numerically at this point. What it does mean is a lot of that numerical growth would come from new um New, like visitors, not those that were formally categorized as regular attenders. Now you're with Unstuck. You're familiar with this research. Is that, is that square with what you're, what you guys are seeing? Yeah. I think that was probably pulled from the most recent report that Tony put out, Tony Morgan with the Unstuck uh, group. But, uh, yeah, we are seeing 30 to 50%. And you're right about the, the new people. Like I just consulted with the church in uh, South Carolina, actually border of, Charlotte, so border of North Carolina, South Carolina, and they are uh, bigger than they were pre-COVID. So they're running more people actually than they were pre-COVID. But in talking to them, a lot of that is new growth. It's new people. I mean, they lost probably the same amount of people as every other church, but they were able to gain newer people you know, just at a faster rate. And I think some of that has to do with where they are in the country, the churches that we work with and, you know, the South Bible belt didn't really uh, do as much for COVID. Some churches didn't break, didn't take off uh, things like that. Where if you go California, you know, like uh, Saddleback, I think the last time I talked to them, they were around 50, 60%, but they also stopped meeting for several, several months um, harvest where I serve at, we're probably about 70, 75% back. Um, you know, I talked to some other churches in New York and all that, and they're even less than that. So I think there are some factors that go into it, but the one thing that I am seeing across the board is that the people that are coming are not necessarily the ones that were there before they're new. 
So years ago, and it's been a few years, you probably remember the debate, um, the pre-Christian, post-Christian debate. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of writers. I, I, this may have predated the blog, and it certainly predated social media. But um, Europe is generally seen as a post-Christian, and those terms, at least in application, are interchangeable. But recently, it seems like that those terms have been brought back up. And that, at least with some people that I've read, some bloggers and some authors and some social media posts out there, that what the what the pandemic did, that two-year, really two-year from 20, I guess it was closer to 18 to 20 months, but from 2020 to late in 2021, um, was only an accelerant in domestic U.S. and maybe North America towards what could be categorized as a post-Christian mentality, and that's what we're seeing. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not, but we wanted to – I thought we thought it would be an interesting thing to do this week to talk about the state of discipleship in that context. Yeah, I I think that will be interesting. And one thought on the post-Christian, I remember I was uh, in a cohort several years ago. It was probably 2013. 2012, 2013, but we were with um, uh, HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton in uh, England. They're the guys who uh, created Alpha, uh, kind of, you know, very influential church. And they they were over and we were just chatting with them and they were talking about the post-Christian world in Europe and and specifically where they were at in England. And we were talking about when is it going to come to the States? And they said, it looks like it's coming your way probably in the next 10, 15 years that you guys are probably about 10, 15 years behind uh, kind of where we are. And that was 2012, 2013. And I think it was, I, th- I think they were, they were pretty right on because we have, you know, all the statistics show there's been a decline in church tenants across the board for the last several years. And so less, fewer people going to church is not a shock. It just was a an accelerant when COVID hit and we're hitting it probably three or four years faster than those guys thought we might be. So Chris, it looks like to me when you, when you start thinking about discipleship in this context, regardless of what you call it, the post-pandemic church, if you want to call it post-Christian, the distinctives of our new reality or what you could call our new reality are going to be very similar. So in some, in some ways, that's just semantics. It looks like when this path diverges into its two branches, on the one side, you've got what we just talked about, which is I, I want to I almost said new believers, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, and it's not seekers either. I don't. I I hope I want to leave that term in 1990. So, but it's it's this idea of people that are checking this out, checking the gospel proposition out, checking biblical truth out, checking church community, Christian community, and the gospel. They're coming to engage that and see what that's all about, which, you know, there may be a a term that is coined for that at some point. And then there's this other branch that would be those that are, that were the regular attendees and either never left or have come back. And then there's, so there's clearly what we're losing here is a middle ground. Yeah. I tend to use for that first category, uh, curious skeptics um, because I think we we have a lot of, especially millennials, Gen Z's 
um, that are very skeptical of the church right now. Uh, you know, obviously the church has not looked great over the last few years in the public eye. And I think that has affected the most. I could be wrong on this. This is my opinion, probably because I'm raising two Gen Zers and are around millennials a lot. But that's the that's the generation that's being affected the most. They are the biggest skeptics right now of the Big C Church. But there are a handful of them that are still curious about their spirituality and they're winding up in our churches because they, you know, I'm seeing people that have their first kid. And so they, they want to attempt church, even though they're skeptical or, you know, they went away to college and got out of church and they came back and they're wanting to see what's changed. And so I, that's, that's kind of where I, I land on that. So we have a lot of those sitting in our pews right, right now. They're not only unchurched, they're skeptical and you're going to have to win them even harder than, than before. It's possible to it's always possible to oversimplify when you're having a conversation like this or overgeneralize. So um, obviously there are strategies and discipleship tactics that were working pre-pandemic that will continue that will continue to work. I do think I do think that now is a time, if there ever was time, like for our generation, for the generation of leadership now, to step back and assess what we're doing and why we're doing it. And ask some really good questions of ourselves about how should we or how could we consider to do different things. And I think what I think one of those things is that we it seems to me, and I'm gonna put it this way because I'm I'm just not gonna try and just measure the words so precisely, but it seems to me that we have typically taught towards a middle ground, and that is those that were really deep. Um, or enriched on the theological spectrum. Um, we asked them to teach more than maybe be fed. And then there are those on the other side, we expected them to either come along or, or not come along. And that's what happens when you teach to this middle ground. If we remove the middle ground in this post-pandemic context, how does that change your approach to discipleship? Because if you can't teach to that lowest I hate the term lowest common denominator, but I think everyone understands what I mean there. If you can't disciple in that space and you've got to choose one of these these paths of the other, doesn't that create a new dynamic for us as disciple makers? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. We can't throw out everything and just say it it, it all changes because – we haven't changed completely as humans. We have the same, we have the same makeup. We have the same desires. Um, but the methods of what we use, I think, can always change. And I, th- I've always believed in the importance of having options for wherever people are on their spiritual journey, uh, whether they're you know all the way to the top or in the middle or at the beginning. Um, always. But I think it's even more important now to have those as clear as possible for people to follow. So they know um, where, where you know, they can discover where they are on their journey, and then they know what where to take their next steps. Um, what we're seeing with churches uh, that I'm consulting with is a lot of them are really good at that first 
that first step. So if you look at a spiritual journey, you, know, you can go from uh, spiritually curious to new believer to uh, growing disciple to disciple maker, you know, kind of that journey along, along the road and then discipling somebody else. Um, a lot of churches are really good at that first part, getting them in the door, you know, uh, that lowest, what you said, denominator, but reaching people at the very beginning. And then they may be really good at that very end part as mm. far as going deep with things. And, but they don't know what to do to get somebody from that. Okay. I've now accepted Jesus. I'm not ready for that, that end disciple making, you know, um, part. I need to be discipled. And I think honestly, that is because that is the hardest part of discipleship. It's the hardest part. And now obviously getting somebody to Jesus is super important and it has to happen. Um, but I think we have incredible ways to do that. Uh, I think Harvest Church that I work with does an amazing job of evangelism, getting people in the door. And then I think there are great methods for deep Bible uh, study and discussion and all of that and somebody who's already there. But it's really hard to get somebody from that front door all the way into, you know, in Andy Stanleyism, all the way into the uh, couch on the living room uh, and, and disciple somebody through those steps. And that, that's something that I've been challenged with and I'm working on with, with my, my context is how do we do that? How do we know? How do, how do we walk us alongside somebody and know where they are spiritually and help them take their next step and eventually get them to where they are disciple makers? So that's where the clarity comes in, right? Because what you have to be able to do is clearly articulate these steps along this spiritual journey. And um, like you said, we're, we tend to be good at the beginning and we understand the end, but those intermediate steps in between seem to be, to me, almost infinite in terms of what they can be, the words you would use to describe them, just because everyone is so different coming into this path. Yeah, I've actually gone back to a book that I read years ago, Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putman. And um, I'm influenced again, just about having the ability to recognize where people are by just how they act, how they talk, uh, the phrases they use. And I think they're going to be different than when he wrote the book. But I still think we need to train leaders and disciple makers on being able to pick up where somebody is on their journey. And then what do you do to, to, to help them take their next steps? Uh, and also that takes challenge. You have to challenge somebody to move forward. Nobody just drifts forward. They drift backwards. And so we have to be intentional to challenge people to move forward. And that's, that's not easy. That's hard. And especially when you're starting with a skeptic, you know, because you uh, have a tendency to start with an apology of, you know, I, I'm sorry for, for the church. I'm sorry for what we've done. I'm sorry for all these things. And, um, but we're not challenging them to, to move forward, to be better, to move toward Jesus and eventually um, take somebody else with them. Yeah. I heard DA Carson put it and he probably got it from somewhere else because it sounds like something that would have come from a long time ago is we, we do not drift towards holiness. Mm -hmm. And so we have to keep that challenge in front of people. So in terms of the state of discipleship and how we might, might approach uh, the current reality, um, clarity and a very clear understanding of this spiritual path that we're talking about, the path of a disciple is, is one of those earmarks. 
And then a second thing is that there needs to be a and either a, I would say both explicit and implicit challenge. There's a challenge that's just in the in the context that we're in in terms of our growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I think there's also stated challenges that are maybe even just written out in some sort of order. These are the things that are expected of us now. And I, I believe I believe those things apply to both of the diverging paths that we identified at the top of the show. There's the path of the those uh the curious skeptics as you described them, and then there's those that are the more seasoned disciples. I think those two things work for both of those. And over and over again. And so I think a third thing that we might talk about, Chris, would be the language that we use. Um, this seems to be a time when we when we rethink how we couch something terms, and I don't have an example top of mind, but in terms of talking to these curious skeptics, you may have some thoughts on this. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you do. We, we really need to think about our presuppositions coming into those relationships. We have some words and some terms that are going to be completely foreign to people that are coming into any of our context, particularly those that are outside of the Bible, the Bible belt, which you and I have had. And Chris, you serve outside the Bible belt. So I don't know. Orange County is a little different that way. There is a, there is a foundation of evangelicalism there, but it's still going to be different from say, the deep South, Georgia, Alabama, and certainly yep, Tennessee. For sure. Yep. But that terminology that we use and how we approach it and what we lead with is very different in a post-Christian dynamic. Yeah, I I think we have to think. Um, you know, this has always been true. Uh, you know, I, that's why I've loved pastors like Rick Warren and uh, Craig Rochelle and Andy Stanley. And people like that, um, you know, they've always used language that anyone can grab onto. You know, Rick talks about how, you know, he has all the degrees and he, uh, he can talk deep theology with anyone. But at the end of the day, what good does that do with somebody uh, in California who is starting from zero? And so, you know, I think a lot of that comes with training. How do we model that for our group leaders? You know, if we model just this, uh, I don't know what the word to put on it, but just this piety of, you know, we know theology, so we're going to use the language of it, then that's going to transfer down and that's going to transfer down. And, you know, the, the people that we're talking about, we're needing to reach or the new people that are coming back, they don't, they, they don't they don't want anything to do with that. They're not ready for that. You know, they're on the, the skim milk. They're not ready for the, for the meat yet. And so we have to train our leaders to be able to translate the Bible study, the study, whatever they're going through, pick the right type of studies for the group that they're leading or they're out on their journey so that they are taking those, those baby steps, those first steps instead of making them leap. Also, th- I think Brian, that, um, you know, another attribute that's going to be important with this is that the, the fact that we need to stay humble um, and not come off like we know everything and we have all the answers. Because I think the one thing that's been proven over the last two and a half years is that we don't have all the answers. We're all figuring this out together, you know, and the blogs that I read with with uh, experts that say they know how to do whatever X and Y now, I'd be like, no, you don't. 
you're you're still figuring it out. And so I think we are going to appeal better to these skeptics, these curious skeptics, if we're say we're kind of all in the same boat. Now there are gospel truths that we're all going to hang our hat on at the end of the day, but there are things in life that we are still all figuring it out together. We're in the same boat. We're all messed up. We're all sinners. And let's do it together. Instead of let me teach you, let's learn together. So something that I picked up, I remember from my school days as a English major, was this idea of the Aristotelian um, method of communication. I'm, I'm sure you yep. ran into it. And it's the, yep. the idea of the, the, the logos, the pathos, and the ethos. Uh-huh. So the logos is the articulated vision or the application, and the ethos is the relationship, the trust that emerges in any relationship. But the pathos is, I think, what you're talking about that, and that is this idea of belonging or to demonstrate an understanding of the other person in any given exchange. And so those guys like Rick and Craig that you mentioned, one of the things that they are so good at, and there's others, we're not limited to those, of course, is they understand who they're talking to and they adapt for that message. And out of that emerges this trust. It just seems like that there would be a renewed emphasis on that aspect of communication in this world that we're inheriting and increasingly uh, moving further and further into with our days and weeks and as it were, Sundays as they roll off, particularly as new people come in. Because I think one, it just seems like too often, too often we – and it's not that we, we don't know this intuitively, but somehow um, we just neglect that aspect of it. And, and sometimes it's just in our – we're just in a hurry. Sometimes we just expect – things to work just at the snap of a finger and we forget the relational aspect of it. One of the things that I, I feel like I'm picking up in some of the conversations that I am in uh, with leaders in the church is they're, they are having to spend much more time in one-on-one and well, one-on-one disciple discipling. And we're also picking that up from the state conventions in some of the conversations that I'm having that there's this, um, this growing need for, or uh, desire to be in one-on-one discipleship conversation. So I think that's another thing when you're talking about humility, that that one person is worth your time. And you know, I think we all understand the, the pressingness of time, but that one person then can take on one person and another person and another person, and then you get the disciples that make disciples. So um, that Aristotelian method of communication, I think, has application here as well. It, probably more on the prior point than humility, I would have to say. Yeah. I, one Another book that I've gone back to, um, which I think they were way ahead of their time, is The Trellis and the Vine. And you actually introduced me to that book a few years ago. But I'm rereading it with my team at Harvest, and that's the argument they made. And I think the book was written, I don't know, early 2000s, maybe, uh, late 19, some, something like that. It's getting to be a little while ago, yeah. Yeah, they did do a new version in 2021 with a discussion guide, which is great. But um, 
but their their point was that we spend too much time working on the trellis, which is the programming, the structure, and all that, and not enough time working on the vine, which is that one on one life on life discipleship. And an example he uses that uh, convicted me is, you know, if somebody comes up to a pastor in the lobby and they're like, "Oh, hey, we're um, we're new. Uh, how can we get involved?" And for most of us as pastors, we think through, okay, what events do we have come up, coming up? What small group, you know, that might fit their, their age range or, you know, all of that stuff, which, which is great. But he challenged in the book that maybe the answer should be, you know, I, I've been talking to, uh, to Jack over here and, um, he's struggling with some things. He's new to the faith. Uh, would you mind maybe just like talking to him and maybe starting a weekly a relationship with that with with him and kind of walk alongside him or if it's a couple with another couple but just that i think that's where we are um you know we still need the big events we still need the small groups but i think the life on life discipleship is the messy um part where we are going to be able to disciple the people that are in this this new whatever sphere that we are building as a world post-christian post-pandemic whatever that is it's one-on-one life-on-life example discipleship that is going to win the day it just stands to reason that where we are is going to be different than where we were now you made the you made the the i think the the appropriate statement earlier of course the gospel doesn't change and discipleship and what a disciple is has not changed. And this is not to say that you embrace culture and cultural trends to an unnatural or unhealthy conclusion. Those are those are not what we're saying. What we're saying is that context now maybe has become more important than ever. And coming out of the post, out of the pandemic, and whatever that is and whatever we want to call it, it seems to necessitate uh, a rethinking of what it means to disciple someone or how you do it. You use the term methodology. And so in terms of just the state of discipleship and whether and this post-pandemic world, there's just some things to consider. Humility, um, how to – the language you use and how to talk to the unchurched and, and the curious skeptics. How do you continue to serve those seasoned disciples that – are rich in theological understanding and acumen with the loss of that maybe middle territory? How do you establish the spiritual path and serve it and clearly articulate it? Uh, Chris talked about just being clear and how you roll out that vision. And those are just some things um, I think that may be be indicators or some benchmarks to consider as group leaders and as group pastors and other leaders within the church, even group members and one-on-one discipleship relationships. So Chris, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Appreciate everyone being with us, just like always. Uh, Love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, Leave a comment, subscribe, because subscribing means you don't have to go look for it or find it accidentally. So appreciate everyone hanging in there and look forward to being with you again next time.